Good day to you all. Welcome to the Scripture Chronicles podcast. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. In this podcast, we have the thesis that the Bible is a single unified story and that it should be read as such. Therefore, we are going through the scriptures as a story in real time, reading through them and showing how they fit together as one cohesive narrative that ultimately points to Christ. Today's episode, we're going to be going through Numbers chapter 15, and might be a bit ambitious, but we're going to try to get all the way through chapter 21 today. Last week's episode, we went through chapters 10 through 14. We titled that one Spies and Lies. And in the Spies and Lies section, we saw a bunch of things transpire. Before we get into the recap, however, I would like to point out that this podcast being a podcast where we go through the Bible as a single unified story, it is cumulative, meaning that each episode builds on the next. So if you have not yet done so, I would recommend you go back and listen to the episodes preceding this one in order to get the full context of today's episode. If you don't have time to go back and listen to all of them, I would at least recommend listening to the ones in numbers. That way you get caught up with the story so far. That being said, we will give our brief recap as is customary. So numbers chapter 10 through 14. Corey, what did we cover last week? Last week, we started in chapter 10, which was the first movement that we've seen so far. So they lifted up camp from the wilderness of Sinai and went to the wilderness of Paran, and they moved because the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle. And when Yahweh in his spirit moves, they follow. Moses defines Israel by God being in their midst. And so this is what defines them. And so they go when God goes, they settle where God settles. And then in the midst of Israel getting up and going and following Yahweh, the rest of the people complain. They complain about hunger. They complain about not having meat. Last week, we saw God punishing people for essentially not seeing that God is the one moving them. So all the people are grumbling against Moses from the whole camp or congregation of Israel to just down to Moses's brother and sister. They're all complaining against Moses, which we see time and time again, God kind of takes that upon himself. You guys are looking at Moses doing these things, giving him credit for it. You guys are sorely mistaken because I am the one moving. That little movement section was just chapters 10 through 12. So in chapter 12, the people set out Hazaroth. There's like a little midway stopping point, And they finally get to Paran, which was their goal at the start of chapter 10. The end of chapter 12, they get there. Chapter 13 and 14 was such a downer part of the book. So chapter 13, God tells Moses to send 12 spies into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Two of the spies bring back great bounties on a pole to show the people but the other 10 spies give a bad report so that they do not want to go. We talked about Caleb and Joshua being the good spies, trying to convince the people, saying, no, no, it is a good land. Nevertheless, the people agree with the 10 spies with the bad report. They try to kill Joshua and Caleb for their good report. God has to come in and stop things. Within all this rebelling and commotion, God finally puts its foot down and says in chapter 14, I'm not going to let you guys come into the uh, promised land of what's now Canaan, what's going to be the land of Israel. I'm not going to let you in there for these 10 times in which you have rebelled and complained against me. Only Caleb gets to come into the land because he has a different spirit. We talked about that a little bit last week. Towards the end of chapter 14, it says, and Joshua. So Caleb and Joshua, the two spies who gave a good report, who had faith in Yahweh, that he can deliver them over the giants in the land, over the many numbers of these nations. 
they get to go and see the land. And then at the end of chapter 14, the people realize they missed out on a great opportunity. So they say, oh, let's go into the land now. But Moses is like, no, that chance is over. And so the people, they still try to go and take the land without God, without his tabernacle going before them. And they are just decimated and chased way down, pursued really far away because they're going without the Lord's power. And so that brings us into chapter 15, where we have a little break in the stories of the disobedience narrative or the desert wanderings. And we get to laws, and we're getting into laws about sacrifices and vows. There's a few chapters today, chapters 15, 18, and 19, and they're going to be instructions again about holiness. And I say again because it's really nothing new from the book of Leviticus. We're not getting new holiness laws per se, but kind of like a reminder. So chapter 15 gets into laws about sacrifice. And with these laws of sacrifice, it uses the words a lot of offering what you have vowed. Really interesting. The first seven chapters of Leviticus are about different offerings one can make to God at his tabernacle. And the last chapter of Leviticus is about vows. And we see Numbers 15 marrying those parts of Leviticus together. We see in books like the Psalms, they talk about offering sacrifices and vows like all together synonymously. We see that's the idea in Numbers 15. Anything else, Dylan? I mean, like I said, all the way back at the beginning of Leviticus, Leviticus is the place where most reading plans go to die. I mean, as soon as you get to the Leviticus and your New Year's resolution, read the Bible in a year sort of thing, usually that's where you stop. You finally made it through Leviticus, and then you get back to Numbers 15, more holiness codes. So hurrah. But that's really all I wanted to say, at least about the beginning of chapter 15, just pointing out that there are still a few holiness codes. However, they do play into the story like we're going to see once we get into chapter 16. The fact that we have some more holiness code in chapter 15 ends up becoming very ironic, and we'll see why that's the case. But before we get to chapter 16, there are a few things that we wanted to point out in chapter 15 itself. One thing I wanted to point out before I turn it back over to Cordy is the idea of the offering for unintentional sin. We have seen this before. However, I wanted to point it out because it is a really interesting thing, particularly in our Western kind of American 21st century context. When we go to church, we have this interesting view of God that basically says that God won't hold us accountable for things that we do out of ignorance. But that is actually a different picture than what we see here, at least with these offerings, is basically even if the people break one of God's laws unintentionally, there's still a sacrifice that needs to be made for that. The people don't get away scot-free simply because they complete ignorance. Instead, God still demands a sacrifice as a result of that because there still needs to be bloodshed. The law was broken no matter what, whether it was in ignorance or not. So that was something that I found particularly interesting. It seems to fly in the face of some of our thought process in our context, and I think we need to wrestle with that. I do want to talk about this really interesting story, verses 32 to 36 of Numbers 15, and it's about a Sabbath breaker. So while they're in the wilderness, they found the man gathering sticks on a Sabbath day. Those who found them put him in custody because they didn't know what to do because Like, is it clear? Like, is this a breaking of the Sabbath? What should be done with this Sabbath breaker? And so Yahweh actually tells Moses that this man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp, which is a really interesting story and makes us think, okay, well, what is Sabbath? 
And we see from the beginning of the book on the first page, you know, when God makes the seventh day, calls it holy, sets it apart so that people can rest and not work on it. God is really serious about wanting his people to rest for their benefit, but also that he wants people to rest, to remember Yahweh and keep him holy. So we see God being really serious about having people acknowledge how holy of a God he is, and that it is also very good for them to acknowledge him, to worship him as holy, because that's just a truth of the matter. God is great, therefore he should be regarded as great. So he wants to help everyone else from falling in the same sin, say, okay, we need to make an example of those who are lawless. In addition to what Corey said, we've already seen multiple instances in the Torah where God commands, keep the Sabbath. This is not something that is like, oh, this gentleman had no idea what he was doing, or maybe he forgot or anything like that. This is something that has been cemented into the Israelites' mind at this point in the Torah. So this is actually an instance of fragrant disobedience. This is rebellion, flat out. It's not like, oh, shoot, man, that poor guy grabbed a stick, man, and he got killed. No, this guy is actually not only disobeying, but rebelling against Yahweh, which is the reason for the death. I wanted to point that out, too, because it's not like, oh, man, poor gentleman. You know. So anyway, back to you, Corey. Yeah, that's really good to clear that up. But yeah, and then let's get into the tassels on the garments. So this is a really cool reminder. God instructed the people to make these little blue tassels that go on the corner of your garments. And when you look at the tassels, this is verse 39, still in chapter 15, you're to remember the commandments of Yahweh to do them. And what he compares that to or contrasts that to, I should say, is so that you do not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So God, realizing you know what his commandments are for, gives us a little summary of what all the Torah is about. So this is like my summary verse to go to for the first five books of Scripture, that the commandments or the instructions even, so not just the commandments, but even the stories, so all the instructions are so that people can look to God, follow him instead of doing what's right in their own eyes, which was the big problem that came up in Genesis 3. People do what was right in their own eyes. And from there on, we've been seeing people who do good in their own eyes and evil in the Lord's eyes. So these tassels are supposed to be a great reminder unto that. God says in the last two verses of this chapter, I'm just going to read them. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh, your God. Guys, please just follow God's commands. And that's where we leave off in chapter 15. We went from chapter 14, the people not really regarding God as holy. They don't really see him as leading them. They're more scared of the nations around them than God. So God gives them these instructions on holiness. And then we're going to go into 16, hoping that they understand the instructions. So Dylan, do they understand it in chapter 16? They most certainly do not. So 16, as I already alluded to earlier, comes right on the heels of holiness code. Ironically, in chapter 16, you get the rebellion of a certain select people led by Korah. And basically, the rebellion is all centered around one question. Korah and his minions go up to Moses and Aaron and say, well, who's to say that you're holier than us? 
And so basically, this entire rebellion is against Moses and Aaron's leadership in favor of Korah trying to prove, in some sense, that they are as holy as Moses and Aaron. So the ironic reversal, I guess, is the fact that you have all of this holiness code in Leviticus, and then again in chapter 15 in Numbers, pointing out what exactly it takes to be holy only for somebody in the Israelite camp to lead a mass number of them astray, over 250 of them, where the question is, who defines holiness, basically? That's the question. In chapter 16, verse 3, they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron, and they said to him, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and Yahweh is with them. Why then do you set yourself above Yahweh's assembly? So that one sentence right there really points out the conflict that is going to ensue in chapter 16 with Korah's rebellion. And so basically what happens is Moses says, fine, we'll take this before Yahweh. We know as the readers that Moses was chosen to be the leader when the people failed to go up the mountain. And so this is really ironic in my mind in the respect that in Exodus 19, if you'll recall, the people were actually called to go up Mount Sinai and meet with God face to face. They were called to be a kingdom of priests. Instead, they stayed at the foot of the mountain. They did not go up as was commanded, and they sent Moses up instead. So in essence, they chose Moses to be the leader when they said, Moses, you go up and you talk to God. Just don't let us see God because then we're going to die. So they chose Moses. So that is where Moses gets his authority to mediate this covenant. They could have been a kingdom of priests, but instead they became a kingdom with priests. There is a test then after Moses talks to them and says, let's bring this before Yahweh. The test is to bring censers with fire and incense to see who God chooses. Corey pointed out, and I thought this was an interesting connection, that the first sin actually in the tabernacle, Aaron's sons, remember, they offer unauthorized fire and they are killed because of it. There's an interesting connection there between bringing the censers of fire to see who God chooses. So Korah, as the text says in verse 7 through 9, was a Levite. So he is of the priestly class, which is another thing to point out. And he seems to be looking for something that is even more beyond the bounds of the Levitical priesthood. Interestingly enough, they are already holy. They are set apart to do priestly duties. And yet he has it in his mind that he should challenge Moses. Once they all come before Yahweh, Yahweh ends up choosing Moses as is to be expected. Once Yahweh chooses Moses, and this is where things kind of become interesting, the text starts talking about how the people need to be pulled away from the camps of Korah and his family and his followers because God is going to judge them. And so it says, don't touch them, don't touch their stuff, stay away from them. And surely enough, the earth, it says, opens its mouth and swallows them. So after Moses is chosen in the sight of everybody, they are destroyed in this very significant way. The earth opens its mouth, eats them, and then it shuts back up. And then we have this other interesting story that happens immediately after that, where the people then start getting killed. And so, Corey, do you want to take us through that story? God had done something totally new. He opened up the earth to swallow Korah, his family, his followers, and their families. And now the congregation comes up again and grumbles against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of Yahweh. 
So notice this. They're charging Moses and Aaron with killing those people. Even though, like Moses said, this is clearly going to be Yahweh's. This is going to be something totally new that we have never seen. I mean, the ground opened up and swallowed people and their stuff. So, I mean, how are they going to blame it on Moses and Aaron? But yet they're still unable to see God behind anything and only say, oh, this is Moses and Aaron. The people are unable to see the spiritual reality going on behind their physical circumstances. Moses and Aaron, they turn towards a tent of meeting and the glory of God appears over it and they fall on their faces. And so God sends this great plague onto the people. And so Moses says, oh, Aaron, hurry, go and get a censer. So again, this problem is going to be solved with a censer, put fire and put incense on it and go quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. That's in verse 46. So Moses realizes that the burning of this incense by the high priest Aaron will somehow make atonement for the grumbling and rebellion of the congregation. Sure enough, it works. However, the plague had already decimated 14,700 people. That's besides those who died in the affair of Korah. So just a really heavy chapter. But again, we see that the people are not walking as they're defined. So remember, at the beginning of the episode, I said that to be Israel, as Moses defined it, means that God walks in your midst. And for the people, they just do not recognize God walking in their midst. God is trying to show himself. He's opening up the grounds. He's breaking open plagues. He's doing all these incredible things Already, he's done incredible things in the land of Egypt and the wilderness so far, but yet the people will not acknowledge Yahweh as even real, except for that one time when they heard God speaking on the mountains, oh no, God's going to kill us. You go before us, Moses. Even though something amazing and scaring is happening again, they still say, oh no, Moses, Aaron, why are you killing us? Which is just a really terrible takeaway that they're unable to see God in anything. And so again, we have another test being done. So Yahweh, in chapter 17 now, he speaks to Moses. He says, speak to the people of Israel, get from them staffs for each of the father's houses, from all the chiefs according to their father's houses. So he gets 12 staffs. Just so that you all know which staff belongs to who, you'll write your names on it. And Aaron's name will be on the staff of Levi for that tribe. As they pull out these staffs, God says, I will make one of them sprout. Thus, I'll make all the grumbling cease because you can see very clearly who God will choose. This doesn't involve any sort of plagues, so there shouldn't be any grumbling, but let it be known, God will make a staff, something that's been off a tree for a long time, but it'll have life in it again. The next day, sure enough, Moses goes into the tent of the testimony. Behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted. And this is all to say that you guys should follow Moses and Aaron. Let this be a sign for you. So this staff of Aaron that budded is actually going to be something that goes inside of the Ark of the Covenant so that the people always remember that God chose the tribe of Levi to serve before him. And as a reminder of God's power so that you would not grumble against God, but trust in his holiness instructions that he has given thus far. Then God singles out like, okay, Israel, remember, let the Levites serve as priests. Let those who I have called holy be the holy ones and you follow in suit. And then the last two lines we hear from this chapter is the people of Israel coming close saying, we perish, we are undone. 
all of us, everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of Yahweh shall die. Are we all to perish? And so going back to Leviticus, we have to ask, is this true? Is this really what happens to all who go near the tabernacle? And the answer is no, but just in case you forgot that answer, actually the next chapter will get into more of this. So chapter 18 is the answer to the question, shall all perish who go before the tabernacle? That question that ends the chapter is very interesting. And so you do already have an entire book entitled Leviticus, Leviticus that explains, as we've already said, what it means to be holy, but also it explains what it means to be a priest and who can go into the tabernacle. And we already have that given. We already know that it's the Levites that are the ones that are supposed to deal with the tabernacle itself, with its furnishings and things like that, and that it's the high priest from Aaron that is able to go into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement once a year. Ironically, the people are not only grumbling against Moses and saying, wow, Moses, Aaron, you guys have killed these people, rejecting God in the process, and then incurring God's wrath. They're also making this grander statement of, oh, we can't even go near God anymore. The Torah is, as we've already said multiple times, it is meditative, contemplative literature. That is, it's meant to be read multiple times, and it is, in a sense, wisdom literature. Not necessarily in the genre sense, but in the respect that the goal of the Torah is instruction. That is what the word Torah even means, is instruction. So the goal then in reading the Torah is to become enlightened as to God's instruction so that one can choose what to do in a situation wisely in accordance with God's wisdom. That is the goal of reading the Torah, is to become accustomed with God's wisdom so that you, in your decision-making, in your daily life, can know what would please God. Being an astute reader then, gaining wisdom from this, you as the reader should at this point pick out things like in the end of chapter 16 or the end of chapter 17 when the Israelites grumble or when they say, hey, nobody can enter. You should be going, well, that's just downright false. And so in a sense, you are actually wiser in your understanding of what God has done if you pick those things up than the Israelites have been up until this point, having been given this stuff in the flesh. And that is the very point of what the books are trying to do, is bring you to that point and recognizing when the Israelites are wrong so that you don't make the same mistake. And so as we have already been expecting, based on the fact that we know the book of Leviticus, chapter 18 then goes into a long spiel on the Levites as priests and what their duties are and what they are to receive as tithes and offerings and things like this, what they're able to keep of the offerings, the meat that is theirs, because they don't get a special inheritance. So unlike all the rest of the tribes, when they enter the land, all the other tribes are given an inheritance of land. The Levites are not. Instead, their inheritance is the tabernacle. Their inheritance is God. So basically, God provides for them by allowing for them to participate in the offerings, get the meat from those, get a tithe, get payment from that, and things of that nature. So that's what chapter 18 is really about. It answers the question, who can go into the tabernacle? Well, the Levites can go into the tabernacle. We already know that. And the high priest through Aaron can go into the tabernacle. And it really cements that into your mind after chapter 16, where everybody rebels, asks the question, what does it mean to be holy? Even though that's already answered, well before that point, it redefines it once again, tells you that Moses and Aaron are the leaders of this escapade, that they are the ones that Moses, being the mediator of the covenant, and Aaron, being the father of the high priests, 
Then in chapter 17, you get Aaron being reestablished in the eyes of Israel as the one who has the right to be the father of the high priest in his branch budding, not only budding, but bringing forth almonds even. And that is placed into the art as a sign for future generations that the Aaronic priesthood are the true rightful high priests. That is really what's going on here. You get that question, what does it mean to be holy? Who are you to choose that you're holier than everybody else? And it's not that they've chosen to be holier than everybody else. Moses was selected by God to do this, to be the mediator of the covenant. Aaron was selected by God to be the father of the high priest. Chapter 18, we mentioned that it talks about priestly and Levitical duties Basically, it talks about, yeah, the Levites are the ones who are chosen by God to serve in the tabernacle. And then it starts talking about what do we do with the leftover meat offered to Yahweh? Well, it goes to the Levites. And what happens to the tithes that are given to Yahweh? Well, let it go to the priests for their service in the tabernacle. Things that we've already heard about. Chapter 19, as we mentioned earlier, is another holiness instruction. This is another chapter of it. And this has to go back to ideas of purification, like what makes something unclean? And after being unclean, like what do you do? How are you cleansed? How are you purified? Chapter 19 gets back into cleanliness and uncleanliness. And, you know, the seven days you spend outside of camp and then you'll be brought in and be made clean again. Just kind of how a few chapters ago we mentioned in last week's episode when Miriam and Aaron grumbled against Moses. Miriam was made leprous and she had to be outside the camp seven days and was made clean. So all that stuff. And so we're just giving explanations for why things have been happening so far in the book of Numbers. I'm going to restate that another way. So, so far in the book of Numbers, especially this section, we will see a grumbling or sin on behalf of the people, and then God will answer them in some sort of punishment or judgment, but then he'll also give a piece of holiness instruction again to answer the grumblings, to answer the reason why it was wrong. So it's a really helpful interpretive guide for the reader the end of the third section of the book of Numbers. So chapters 13 through 19, that's just the people in the wilderness of Paran. And now we're going to go through chapters 20 and 21. And this is the second and last travel section of the book. So chapters 20 and 21, we see at the beginning of chapter 20, the congregation is coming into the wilderness of Zin, and they're going to stay in Kadesh. Okay, and also something that's given even less airtime than that travel line is Miriam died and was buried there. So sad. She gets no love. Even for being Moses' sister, she gets a very short sentence. All right, she died there and buried. And on to the next thing. Chapter 20, as Corey already pointed out, is the, the beginning of more narrative. So we finally finished off with talking about the Levites, their right to the tabernacle and the things of it and all of that. It finished up the holiness code. And now we're getting into the travel log once more. And so we have our location. And then we have the Israelites come and grumble yet again before Moses and say, Moses, <clears throat> we don't have any water. Can we have some more water, please? And if you uh, haven't picked up on what I'm talking about yet, that's uh, Exodus chapter 17, where they do that. And so now, once again, they come before Moses and say, Moses, we need water. We're parched. Why did the Lord bring us out here to die again? 
ironically, it even goes so far as to say that Egypt was an amazing spot. And so at least we had stuff to drink there and blah, 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 same stuff over and over again. And so Moses and Aaron, they go out from the assembly and they actually go to the tent of meeting to meet with Yahweh to inquire of Yahweh what to do. Yahweh says this, and that's very important. Verse 8 of chapter 20 says, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. If Exodus 17 is running through your head right now, you might recall that in Exodus 17, God actually does say to hit the rock and that water will come out. But in this instance, it specifically says, speak to the rock and water will come out. And so Corey and I were having a debate before the beginning of the podcast, trying to figure out if we thought that chapter 20 and Exodus 17 were actually the same story, or if they represented two different instances of bringing forth water from the rock. And it's fairly inconclusive. However, that is one major detail that is different. So we have Moses then take the staff from Yahweh's presence. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. Must we bring water out of this rock? Then, verse 11, Moses raises his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. Did you guys catch what he did wrong there? He struck the rock twice, contrasting that with what Yahweh had said to speak to the rock. So in verse 12, we have Yahweh say to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of Israel, you will not bring this community into the land I have given them. And so we have a fragrant disobedience on behalf of both Moses and Aaron. Both of them are actually judged for this. So both of them have disobeyed Yahweh. And not only have they disobeyed, Corey pointed this out, and I think it's really interesting. The wording here really harkens back all the way to Exodus 20. Remember when we talked about the 10 words and in the 10 words, one of the 10 words was, thou shalt not take the name of Yahweh in vain or the Lord your God in vain. And so we had discussed when we talked about that particular section that there is this argument from Dr. Carmen Imes that suggests that basically what it means to take Yahweh's name in vain, it doesn't really mean to say something like, oh my God, it's not so much verbal rather than to bear God's name. So that means to carry God's name wrongfully. So that's really her interpretation of that based on her own research, which has a lot of good argumentation behind it. And so in understanding it that way, this verbiage seems really to harken back to that, that Moses and Aaron failed to bear God's name correctly in the sight of Israel. And that is what they're being punished for. That is why they're unable to go into the promised land with Israel, because they took Yahweh's name in vain. They did not bear it properly before Israel themselves. So that was what I thought was particularly interesting in that section. Corey, anything else? Yeah, there's this little detail. Right before Moses strikes the rock, he speaks to the people and he says, Here now, you rebels. So he's talking to Israel here. He's calling them rebels. And he says, Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? So we have to ask, well, who is he meaning by we? And it almost sounds like Moses is being like the people here and saying, oh, yeah, you know, me and Aaron leading the people. And maybe he's not quite as bad. Hopefully he's meaning, you know, me and God, we. But the fact that he's sinning like the people in the sense where he's thinking he is really doing these things 
that's a no fly zone. Something we've seen over and over again that we keep bringing up is the people mistake Moses and Aaron for doing these things and not crediting them to Yahweh, who's actually coming from. So Moses does the same thing. Going back to just that idea of, oh, is this the same story as the story in Exodus 17? And it's kind of interesting because that place was called Meribah as well. And so it's like, well, is this like repeating the story? But remember, that story came as they're leaving Egypt before they get to the mountain. And so what a more likely scenario happening is that, you know, remember, chapter 14, Yahweh just promised the people that they would be wandering the desert for 40 years. So now it seems like they're going backwards. They're going in loops. And so they're going back to the place of quarreling, Meribah, those waters. And now, besides just the people quarreling and asking for water, Moses himself is quarreling with the people. Moses is taking credit for bringing water out of the rock. And Moses is disobeying Yahweh by striking the rock out of anger instead of listening to Yahweh and speaking to the rock. So just really huge place right here. Moses is prohibited from entering the promised land. So last week I posed the question, like, okay, I wonder who else will fall. We've seen Israelites fall, the whole camp. We've seen Moses' own brother and sister fall. And now here we go. Moses himself, the leader whom God loves. God calls him his friend. Moses is even disobeying God. And even Moses is doing what is right in his own eyes instead of listening to God. It seems like a small thing. Again, it's just really big, that especially the leader, be honoring God and upholding his name as holy. Pretty um, ironic, isn't it, that Moses calls the people rebels when in fact he's the one being the rebel himself? Yes, of course. <laughs> you rebels, as he does something rebellious. Yeah. And so from there, we have this really quick shift to going back to talking about their traveling. And so Moses sends some messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. And remember, Edom, their ancestry comes from Esau. Jacob, or Israel's brother. So this is like their brothers and sisters. This is their family. Moses sends a message through these messengers and talking about the hardships of Egypt, but how an angel brought them out. Now they're in Kadesh, and they just need to get passing through the land. They don't even want anything from them. They're not going to ask for any water, any fruit, nothing. Just let us go along the king's highway. But big point here is that Edom does not let them pass. And so that's all we get so far, but that's going to be something important to come. So Edom does not let Israel simply pass through their land. They don't trust Israel. They don't want to help Israel. And so as they're continuing to journey through the wilderness, we record at the end of chapter 20, Aaron dies. And really interesting story, although Aaron, he does not get much screen time, kind of like his sister Miriam, although he does get a little bit more. He gets a short paragraph. And the only reason why he gets much screen time in his death is because the author is focusing on the passing down of Aaron's clothing to his son, Eleazar. And so Yahweh tells Moses and Aaron on top of a mountain, saying, let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land, because you rebuild against my command at the waters of Meribah. So interestingly, Aaron seems like he's suffering from Moses's most recent disobedience. And so you're going to bring Aaron and Eleazar up Mount Hor, 
You're going to take off Aaron's garments and put them on Eleazar, his son. And there Aaron will be gathered to his people and there he will die. We have this high place where the high priest is being switched off from Aaron to Eleazar. And it seems to be going through so much effort and work to show that the priests did not touch any dead body. Eleazar will take on the garments of his father, the high priestly garments, without anyone having to touch a dead body. So no one will be made unclean for this. And remember, this is a big deal for the priests, especially back in Leviticus where Aaron's sons were killed for offering unauthorized fire. Aaron did not take off his priestly robes or his clothes or anything. Instead, he stayed serving in the tabernacle. And so it's such a big deal. So they're saying, all right, here's the first high priest transfer. Go up on this mountain, hand over to the next line. And so we see the first of the passing down to the next generation, from Aaron to his son. And then all the congregation who saw that Aaron had perished, they wept for him for 30 days. 21 then, we have one really big story that a lot of you will probably recognize right off the bat, kind of sandwiched in between some really interesting stories. So right off the bat in chapter 21, we have the Canaanite king, Arad, who lived in the Negev, and that's the southern portion of Israel and Jordan area, the deserty part. He heard that Israel was coming along the road to Ethereum. He attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. So the Israelites made a vow with Yahweh. If you will deliver these people into our hand, they will just totally destroy their cities. And again, that's what they were supposed to do in the first place was when they entered the land, they were supposed to take it. They were supposed to wipe out all the inhabitants and claim it for themselves. Now, one thing I wanted to point out that does seem a bit odd is, if you'll recall, at the end of chapter 14, we saw how the Israelites, after having failed to go into the land and claim it when they were supposed to, then decided, ah, oh, maybe we'll go in now. They went in and got their butts absolutely handed to them. And so now they're not necessarily going into the land. They're still on the opposite side of the Jordan at this point. They're not going to actually go back in and claim the land yet. That will be reserved for a future book. However, we do have some instances, both at the beginning of chapter one, as well as the end of chapter 21 and verses 21 and on, where you actually see the people having some victories with some various people that won't let them pass or that come out against them. And so I wanted to point that out. I did think that was interesting. It does highlight the fact that even in spite of all of the failings that Israel has subject themselves to, their own failings, they've done what is right in their own eyes, they've grumbled, all of the typical things we would expect from sinful humans as a result of the fall, they have done all of those things. Even after having said it, Exodus 19, we will do everything that Yahweh says. Yeah, right. Most ironic section in the entire Bible, in my opinion. But nevertheless, Yahweh is still with his people. Not because of his people, but in spite of his people. He chooses to preserve a remnant, not because his people are great, but because he does it for his own glory. So I wanted to point that out. Then the one major section that you'll probably be familiar with is the story of the bronze serpent. In verse 4, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea to go around Edom, because remember, Edom wouldn't let them through. So the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. Wow. Again, yes, again. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and the desert has miserable food. So basically, all of the things that Numbers has so far pointed out that they've grumbled about, it brings it back up right here, and they grumble about it all again, even after the Lord provides for them food and everything like that. But nevertheless, verse 6, Then Yahweh sent to me venomous snakes. 
So it wasn't just one, lots of them. Among them, they bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against Yahweh and against you. Pray that Yahweh will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. That really reminds me of me and us. Even in our modern context, we do that all the time, don't we? Where things are terrible and we're like, oh, God, help me. Oh, Jesus, save me from this. And then all of a sudden, everything is hunky-dory and, eh, it's God. Let's grumble about the fact that we don't have a Ferrari. You know, it's ironic. Anyway, verse 8. Then Yahweh said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look on it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So the concluding thought for me on this particular section and on the podcast as a whole is simply that you have this section that details what happened. I mean, once again, you have Israel grumbling against Yahweh. And once again, Moses prays for the people and Yahweh gives them a way out. But this image, more than most of the other images that have been given so far, really is picked up by the New Testament authors and highlighted to basically give you the main thrust or point of why Christ came and what Christ has done. So just like the serpent is is lifted up, this bronze serpent, so that anyone who gazes upon it can live, so too Christ was lifted up on a cross. And when he's lifted up on a cross, anyone who gazes upon Christ and claims him as Lord is also able to be saved. And so I think that that imagery right there is absolutely striking. And I definitely think that this is, you know, very powerful imagery that the New Testament authors pick up on and use to describe Christ and Christ's atoning death for us. So that's my final concluding thought on that. Corey, did you have anything else on uh, chapter 21? Yeah, I mean, this is just such a crazy chapter and a crazy story. So we see, like, again, another plague on the people. The people, Israel, besides, you know, like Dylan said, being a lot like us, they're also a lot like the Egyptians who God had to send plagues on involving animals, kind of like this. that had to take away lives of those who were the targets of the plagues, like the Israelites here in Numbers 21. And then there is some sign that God makes to show that things are better, or at least for a certain group of people. So like at the end of the 10 plagues, God gives the Passover, and that's a meal or celebration instituted for all of Israel, for all generations, as long as that covenant is good. And now we have here, right, look at this bronze serpent that you made. Simply by like believing that this will save you, you just do the act of looking up at it, you will be saved. And so, yeah, great connections to Exodus. Uh, the Israelites are being, like the Egyptians, sinful, deserving judgment. And of course, it's looking forward to Jesus. Uh, this is looking forward to John chapter 3. If you guys didn't know, this story is brought up by Jesus in John chapter 3. Ties going backwards, ties going forward. And then I guess just to kind of wrap up, yeah, we, we leave off in this really weird place. Like Dylan mentioned that we have Israel taking out people of the land. And it's just so amazing that in the midst of God telling the people like, all right, you guys will not go into the land because of your disobedience. And despite their constant sin, even from their leader, God is still using them. God is still walking with them. God is still coming through on his promises, although he's going to bring the people into the land in the next generation. He doesn't just completely leave them, leave them for destruction in the desert. He remembers his promise. He remembers Moses' intercession 
finally, we're ending an episode of Numbers on a high note at the end of chapter 21, where God gives his people victory in the midst of their disobedience. So it's not like he's giving them victory because they're awesome or they're righteous or whatever. God is just blessing his people because he's a God who desires to bless. And actually, next week, that is going to be the main course of the episode where it's all about God blessing his people despite his people's disobedience. That's all I got to say upon this week's episode in chapter 21. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. We're going to go ahead and wrap up there. Customary final notes. If you guys would like to follow along with the Bose Real-Time Information, the Facebook page is the place to do that. We also have a website, www.thebibleisastory.com. There you'll find the blog, the YouTube channel, the podcast, and all our other resources. Finally, if you would like to support us, you can do that in multiple ways. You can definitely pray for the podcast. And if you'd like to do it financially, you can do it on the bibleisastory.com. Click on Donate. If you'd like to chat, the email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for tuning in yet again. We hope you have a great rest of your whatever time of day it is. And shalom. Shalom. Adios. Adios.